Well, good morning, Creekside. I'm Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. And man, so happy to be worshiping with you guys. If you're uh, new visiting with us, welcome. We're glad to have you here. And um, I'd love a chance to say hi to you in the lobby afterwards. And uh, you can scan. There's a little code in front of you if you want to scan that. We'd love to, you know, learn who you are and, and share kind of the heart of the church and what it looks like to get connected and all those kinds of things. Um, this morning, we're, we're jumping back into Ecclesiastes, um, which I'm excited about, but I'm just going to tell you right now, it's a big gut punch today, okay? So um, that's just what we, we need to come to expect from this uh, particular section. He just systematically goes through uh, life, and we already kind of know it, but he just tells us explicitly, life is terrible, and here's yet another reason why. But don't worry, he says some hopeful things today, too. Um, to start off on that, um, how many of you guys in the last few years, just like raise your hand, how many of you have uh, had a significant job change in the last few years? Okay, that's a lot. That's a lot. And that's like statistically on track. Um, they say that 47 million Americans changed jobs in 2021. Like that's, that's a lot. That's a lot. They, uh, uh, there's a, uh, a Gallup poll that found that like half of Americans last year were like seriously considering changing jobs. And like, there's just a lot of us that are like really um, unhappy. I, I'm saying a lot of us, I'm really happy with my job. So I just want to make sure you guys all know. Um, I, I love it. Thank you that I get to do it. I'm, I love it. But many of you are having a rough go of it. And, um, and so there's this, this discontent that I feel like the last, I mean, it's probably been growing, but the last few years really brought it out where everyone's like, I'm working, I'm spending so much of my time in this. And it really isn't like, scratching the itch like I thought it was. There's got to be something better out there. And um, so the, the preacher, uh, you know, a couple, a few thousand years prior to the, the recent polls and the recent things, beat us to it and just said, hey, if you're looking for meaning in your work, it's not going to be found. It's going to be rough. So here's what we do. This is a, this is a heavier one, okay? It's going to talk about death. Um, there, there's like some heavy stuff here, but it ends in a hopeful place. So just journey with uh, the preacher, journey with me through this. Um, he, we're going to start with three complaints that he gives about his uh, working life. So first complaint is that wisdom is better than foolishness, but death always wins. Um, so there you go. The kind of uplifting comment, uh, content you need. We're going to start in Ecclesiastes 12 through 15 here. So um, read along with me. As I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has been done before. Um, then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I perceived that the same event happens to them all. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen also to me. Why then have I been so very wise? I said in my heart that this also is vanity. Okay, so he's trying to figure out, okay, life, like, how do I live my life? And, and so we've looked at the path of, like, wisdom uh, in the past where, like, um, he's trying to figure out, okay, if I can just be, like, wise enough, if I can get enough knowledge, then life will make sense. And he come, came to the conclusion, no, actually, life doesn't make sense. It still is this enigma. It's this, uh, the word he uses is vanity. It's, it's the word havel. It means, like, breath, wind, vapor. It's, like, it's enigmatic. We can't figure it out. We can't decide, like, what does it actually mean? So he said that with wisdom. We, we looked... Um, two weeks ago at the path of pleasure, where maybe if we like just dive in, man, and we, we find like all the pleasure we can through, uh, through music or through um, sexual gratification or through eating and drinking, like maybe these things will make us happy in the end. And he says, no, 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 those things also are vanity. They're enigmatic. They don't solve the the question for us. Now he's saying, okay, well, what if we try the path of wise living? Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make good decisions. I'm gonna make like godly ones, biblical principles. Like I'm gonna... Um, 
and be responsible, you know, financially and, and whatever. I'm not going to take the path of foolishness and folly and madness. I'm going to be a wise human being. But he gives us the same conclusion that he does um, over and over again. I said in my heart, this whole thing is vanity. It's just like trying to grab after the wind. It's all meaningless. It's just vapor. It doesn't materialize anything for us. But, but he starts by saying in, in verses like, um, so I think in verse 12, he's kind of said in the course, like the person that comes after me is going to deal with the same things that I've dealt with. And so I'm going to just like figure this out for everybody, which is like really nice of him to try. And he just comes down. And he, he does give a statement that's positive. Um, I saw there's more gain in wisdom than folly. There's more gain in light than darkness. And he's saying like the, the, the person who's wise, like they've got their eyes in their head. They can see where they're going and what they're doing. So he's, he's saying it like, Look, I, growing up, I, I was taught that it's true, that like being wise is better than being foolish. And he's affirming that here. Like, yeah, I mean, definitely better to be wise than not, right? But he says, I'm looking at the outcome of it all. And if I live my life wise, prudent, careful, cautious, um, godly, versus the person that lives their life in a foolish way, at the end of the day, what happens to both of us? We die. Like, that's the implication of what he's talking about. At the end, the wise person and the fool, we come to the same end, we die, and what's the whole point of it? This is dark stuff. I'm t- I told you it was dark. It's really dark stuff. And so he's saying, like, look, I know it's better to be wise, but, like, when I'm looking at life and observing what happens, like, what, what actually did I gain by, by all the energy and all the restraint that went into me living a wise, prudent life? Because death always wins in the end. Um, this is the same, same question, uh, Leo Tolstoy, he's like a famous Russian author, and he, uh, he, he has this book called like, Confession, where he talks through like his life and being raised in the Orthodox Church in Russia, and um, kind of coming to a place where he lost his faith, and then coming to a place in his 50s where he, um, he was like um, considering suicide, and he says it like this, very rational, but he says, my question, the one that brought me to the point of suicide when I was 50 years old was, a most simple one that lies in the soul of every person, from a silly child to a wise old man, it is this. What will come of what I do today or tomorrow? What will come of my entire life? Is there any meaning in my life that will not be annihilated by the inevitability of death which awaits me? That's it's dark, right? They, like, the, the preacher in Tolstoy, they're like staring into the abyss and they're just like, I can't get past this question. It's like, what is the point, right? L- live wise, work hard, be a good person, live, live this prudent life. But they're looking in and they're saying, but, but why? Like, what do I actually gain from it all? See, I think we're, we, we ignore the concept of death and we try to live our lives as though we're never going to die. But there's always these reminders. And if we take a minute to just stop and think, we, we remember, actually, you know what? Death is inevitable. And so how, how, how we live, it's going to, at the end of the day, I hate to be the one to break it to you, at the end of the day, it always ends in death for all of us. Like, that's where it all is headed. Today is September 11th, right? It's a 21-year anniversary of what happened on September 11th, 2001, and that horrible thing. And, and I, I'm just picturing, okay, there's all these people that showed up to work that day, right? And they had no idea that death, that, that was going to be the day. Like, so many people lost their lives. So there's those that it was a surprise for, right? Then on the other hand, there's these, like, insanely courageous, valiant uh, first responders that went in, right? And they could see the situation. And I think a lot of them knew like, this is going to be the end, right? But they went in bravely. And so it just, whether you see it coming or whether you don't, right? Whether you're living wisely, whether you're living foolishly, like death always comes to all of us. And there's these reminders that man, like death looms. And if we could consider and step back and think about, okay, yeah, how do I want to live? The preacher is simply telling us like, Man, live your life one way or the other, but I'm telling you, you're not going to find life, uh, meaning in life just by living wisely. 
You're not going to find meaning in life just by living foolishly. Um, there is this ultimate end that comes to both types of people. Sometimes we try to make Christianity like a happy religion. And I, I mean, of course it is. And don't worry, we're getting into a much happier place in like, give me like 15 minutes and it's going to be way happier. Um, but I think sometimes we treat it like, if I do the right things, if I just honor God with how I live, then my life will be filled with blessing, right? Like if, if I just, if like we raise our kids to be godly with godly principles, they're going to turn out great, you know? If I, if I work hard enough and if I um, pray and I tithe and things like that, then God's going to give me the promotions that I need. And we kind of try to turn Christianity into a formula for happiness. And I, I think this kind of reminder is good. Like, hang on, let's not be so quick to turn it into a formula. Life is pretty rough, I've got a quote here from Donald Miller, who, um, he wrote a book called, um, called Searching for God Knows What. Um, incidentally, the same title as, um, as my sermon series, but I had titled this sermon series like 20 years ago when he wrote the book. So I think, uh, anyway, he, uh, he, he, he's talking about, he's very tongue-in-cheek, but he's talking about trying to write a Christian bestseller, and he's like, I know the way to do that is to find a formula in the Bible that you can get everybody sold on. So he says it like this, I began poring over the Bible looking for formulas I could use for my book of daily devotions. And I have to tell you, this was much more difficult than you might think. The formulas, in fact, are hidden. It seems that when God had the Bible put together, he hid a lot of the ancient wisdom. So basically, you have to read, uh, read into things and even kind of make things up to get a formula out of it. The formulas that are obvious are terrible. For instance, a guy named Stephen was miserable, then he became a Christian, and then he was stoned to death. This formula, of course, was not good enough to make the cut. Uh, and for that matter, neither was the one about Paul, who was a murderer before he became a Christian, and then he was blinded while traveling, met Jesus in a burst of light, and then spent various painful years moving from city to city, prison to prison, routinely being beaten and bitten by snakes. No formula there. I moved on to Peter, who was rescued from a successful fishing business, only to be crucified along with his wife. And of course, that wouldn't work. So I decided to ignore the actual characters of Scripture and just go with the teachings of Jesus. And that is when things got really difficult. Apparently, Jesus had not heard of the wonderful tool of acronym. He mostly told stories, some of which were outlandish. Step one, eat my flesh. Step two, drink my blood. Of course, I got frustrated. And it really got me thinking that perhaps formula books, and by that I mean books that make you, uh, take you through a series of steps, may not be all that compatible with the Bible. I looked on my shelf at all the self-help books I happened to own, the ones about losing weight, the ones about making girls like you, the ones about getting rich, and I realized none of them actually helped me all that much. All the promises of fulfillment really didn't work. My life was fairly normal before I had read them, meaning I had good days and bad days, and then my life was fairly normal after I read them, meaning I still had good days and still had bad days. It made me wonder, honestly, if such a complex existence as the one you and I are living can really be broken down into a few steps. It seems as if there were, if there were a formula to life, Jesus would have told us what it was. I think that's such a good reminder because I feel like we don't always state it, right? Like who, who among us is going to be like, yeah, just do what God wants and you're going to be happy all the time. But don't we like live with that expectation? Like I, I just feel like that's, it's how we go about our lives. If I do, if I do the right thing, it's like everything's going to be fine. But the, the book of Job sits here, right? And it just, the book of Job is like, yeah, Job was a righteous man. And then he lost everything. Not because he messed up, but because he was righteous. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is in here to tell us, yeah, it's better to live a wise life. But at the end of the day, like things are still going to fall apart. You're going to experience sorrow. You're going to experience death. We all are going to. And so he's leading us into this place of saying, okay, yes, I understand. You want to hold on to this, even if it's a good thing, like wise living, good thing. 
but you want to hold on to it. And I'm telling you, it's not going to satisfy. It's going to pull you down because all of it is this enigma. It's this vanity. It's this thing that falls apart. So there's the first, first complaint. Man, um, wisdom is better, but death always wins in the end. The second complaint, my legacy is going to be a letdown. Like he already knows how this is going to work. So starting in verse 16, he says, For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. So here it is. Work hard, skill, knowledge, everything, invest yourself, and then you're going to have to someday hand it off to someone that's going to be a total knucklehead, and they're going to destroy it, right? Maybe they'll be wise, maybe they'll be foolish, but like work as hard as you can, invest yourself, like perfect it, and then right at the time that you hit your prime, you hand it off, and it just gets destroyed. And nobody remembers you when you're gone. So, so raise your hand. If you, do you remember, do you know the names of your great-grandparents? Does anybody know the names of your great-grandparents? few of you guys do. I'm, I'm just going to say that's super impressive. I don't remember m- the names of my great-grandparents. You guys are overachievers that do. And if I go back, your great-great-grandparents, do you know their names? Great-great-great? Like, you don't have to go that far back before it's like, literally don't even know their names, let alone anything that they did or accomplished or what their daily life was like, what they accomplished in their work. Um, it's crazy. It's never bothered me that I haven't known the names of my, great, my great-grandparents. Um, but then I'm reading this. I'm like, yeah, uh, when I have great grandkids, it feels like it would be nice if they at least knew my name. It feels like, you know, all this stuff that I'm working so hard for, I'm like, this matters so much. And it's like, nah, just give it a few years. No one's even going to remember that it happened, right? <laughs> it's terrible. Um, it's absolutely terrible. There, there's this song on, on my Ecclesiastes playlist um, by a band called Jimmy World, one of my favorite bands from college. And they have a song called My Sundown. And the chorus of it goes, um, with hands held high, you'll show them your progress. So it's like, you know, you're just so proud of what you've accomplished. It says, you'll take your time in explaining it, but no one cares. And then the, the really beautiful chorus is, no one cares, no one cares, no one cares. And, uh, and it's just such a, it's exactly what he's saying. Man, you're working so hard. We're doing so good. We're investing ourselves. Nobody cares. Everyone's going to forget. You're going to hand it on to someone who's going to mess it all up. I've been a part of ministries where, like, you pour your heart into the whole thing, and then God, like, leads you on. You hand it off to the next person to, like, do their best with, and they just blow it, man. They blow it, or they go just a different direction. And there's ministries I've been a part of that, like, they don't even exist anymore. And so it's like everything that I invested myself into, if it doesn't even, like, what is the point of it? Now, I definitely believe there's a point in it. I, I want to just say that. And, and actually... Um, the preacher here will get into that too, but the, the thing is, as he's looking at all this, it, like this disgusts him. He says in verse 17, um, I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. Like he's just saying like this, it's disgusting to me, this whole thought that like I'm going to invest everything and then it's not going to matter in the end. It's just this grasping the wind. You can't catch it. You, you chase it and it's just, there's no point to the whole thing and you hand it down. He, he's like depressed. In verse 20, he's talking about how he gave his heart over um, to despair over all the toil. Like, it's just that, and he says even it's a great evil. Like, this is a really messed up aspect of existence. So, 
We're still depressed. Let's be depressed a little bit longer. Third complaint, work stinks, okay? And, and he doesn't even try to sugarcoat it at all. Verse 22, what has man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation, which I love the ESV, by the way, but that is like the worst translation of anything ever. Like when was the last time you used the word I'm, I'm vexed over something? My goodness. Um, frustrated or, or something would be way better. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Okay, so while you're working, he's saying like life is full of sorrow. So, so life stinks while you're working because work is just the worst, okay? So you're, you're full of sorrow, like you're, you're burdened by it all, right? And so we just kind of go through the work itself is hard to do, constantly frustrated, constantly irritated, right? I mean, how many of you guys have said like everybody I work with is an idiot, you know? Like that, I feel like that's been said around most of your dinner tables at some point, right? Like everybody I work with is just an idiot. Like, now, to be fair, I don't know what this is like. I've never experienced this. My work life is fantastic, but I just am trying to sympathize with you guys. Um, you might say something like, you know, at work, at work, if I want something done right, I've got to be the one to do it myself, right? I mean, we kind of know how that goes sometimes. Uh, if, you, if you deal with customers on any level, right, every one of your customers is super unreasonable, and they're all kind of idiots too, right? We know how that goes. Um, I've heard pastors say, it, like, ministry would be amazing if it wasn't for people, you know? Um, <laughs> You could just really figure everything out, you know? And, and so the idea of like throwing yourself into work, work is going to be hard. It's going to be full of sorrow. So the work itself, but then the other problem he sees is that like work makes the rest of your life stink as well, right? It's hard while you're doing it. And then it's hard when you come home from it. He's saying like at night, you, you don't rest. Like you're, you can't even like sleep at night because your head is like going through all these things that just like are terrible with work and you can't sleep. And um, man, I've been through seasons like that of just like, um, there, there's like school projects I've had from the past that every now and then will still keep me awake at night. I'm like doing a work, a school project again in my brain. I wake up enough to be like, what am I, just go to sleep. What am I doing? It just follows you. Um, a, a handful of years ago, a couple of years ago, we dealt with all this uh, tension between um, protests and police and, and there's all these things. And in that process, I got a chance to talk to a couple of friends that are police officers. And one of them gave me this book called Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement um, by a guy named Kevin... Um, Gil Martin is the guy's name. And what it does is it goes through, like it talks about this, um, this cycle of hypervigilance. So for a police officer, um, what he describes is you're, you're like there and you're just like ultra on guard. Like you're just like, you're just like everything is vigilant because everything is a potential threat to you. And so you're assessing like everything around you. And so you're just like in this state of like hyper awareness all the time. Okay, so then you get to the end of your workday and you clock out but your body doesn't shut down right away, right? It takes a while to like decompress from all that kind of stuff and let go of that. And, they, and he says, by the time that police officers come home, there's this cycle of like hypervigilant and they get home and they're just like retreating from it, like withdrawing from life. And there's this cycle that, that makes it difficult to sleep, difficult to like eat, difficult to enjoy family. And so the, the book is trying to get into this sense of like, this is why it's so hard to be in that state. And I I'm not trying to equate like what the rest of us do for a living, certainly not what I do for a living with what police officers go through, but there is that sense in which your work just kind of takes it out of you. And so it stinks while you're doing it. It stinks after you're done. It just messes up life. And he's just saying like all of it is just this vanity. It's this enigma. We cannot figure out life on the basis of all this. Are you guys good and depressed? I've got good news. So he is now going to say the first um, positive things he said in the entire book, but it's, it's very gentle, okay? And so I'm calling this a statement of quiet hope, okay? And so here's what he says in verses 24, 25, and 26. There's nothing better for a person 
than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Now, I'm being like tempered with this, okay, because he still comes to the conclusion it's all still vanity. It's this enigma, like it still doesn't make sense. It's still grasping up to the wind, but he is giving us some hopeful statements. So remember in the book, he's been like looking at what's under the sun, okay? So if you're, if, you're, if you're looking at like what's under the sun, this is how I'm making sense of my experiences. But now he begins to kind of look uh, big picture for a second. He'll get back into like different quests and different hard things. But for a minute, he's like taking his hands away and he's looking above the sun. He mentions God for the first time in a while in here, a few, three times in this section, right? And so he's talking about, the thing is, though, for us as humans, all these things that let us down, work and, and um, food and drink and things like that that are letting us down, if we receive them as gifts from God, I believe this is what he's saying, if we receive them as gifts from God, then there's nothing better in life than to experience these things as a gift of the Lord. So if you, if you look under the sun and you're trying to take these things in themselves, they're not strong enough to pull your hopes up and to carry you through life. But if we take our hands away and we see them as a gift from a good creator that loves us, that, that, that even though things are hard, still cares about us, these things can be gifts that we hold on to. And so I think what he's doing, he, he really is kind of contradicting himself. So earlier he's been like, um, these things will not satisfy. And now he's like, best thing you can do is enjoy these things. I think he's laid his observations of how rough life is on the table. And now I think he's just kind of gently laying these thoughts next to it and just saying, okay, but as a gift from the Lord, though, these things become different and meaningful. And so there's this hope here. Now he's going to kind of almost put it back or he's going to step away from the table and keep uh, exploring in the, in, the, in the chapters ahead of us. And kind of by the end here, it still is all vanity and striving after wind, but I think he's got this kind of quiet, hopeful suggestion that maybe these things work out. If we, if we open our hands, receive life as a gift, then even the same things that have been letting us down, I think can um, help us find it. I mean, he says in here, um, it's, it's from the hand of God. And he says in verse 25, apart from him, who can eat or drink or have enjoyment? So apart from God, if we try any of these things apart from God, it lets us down. And we know the disappointment of these things. But if we can receive them as a gift from the hand of God, that's where we might find some meaning in this life as a gift that God gives. So as you take your, your food, right? Food is amazing. I mean, I, I like just, I'm super a fan of food, okay? It's like so good. But you can take your food and you can like cook it to perfection. You can order from the absolute best res- restaurant and you can Instagram as hard as you want that meal and put it out there, right? If it's a gift from God, man, it's a blessing and it's a good thing and you can enjoy it. But if you need that meal to like provide you with like meaning in your life, it's just not gonna do it. Uh, uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And so the same things that let us down if we try to hold them up too high, if we receive them as a good gift of God, he's saying everything that God gives us is good. Everything created by God is good. We have this, I think one of the problems that we run into is we have this um, culture where we, we work really hard, um, and so we like dive into our work, and then we kind of retreat from it to find some joy and satisfaction. That's, we have this like vacation industry is huge, right? So like 
Work, 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 build up money, save, and then vacation from your work because work is going to kill you, but like find some peace and rest and relaxation away from your work. The entertainment industry is the same. Work during the day and then come home, unwind, um, go, go see something, go enjoy something. So our vacation culture, our, our entertainment culture are saying like, yes, these things are tough. Let's separate life and enjoyment from that. But the reality is, I think what uh, the preacher is suggesting to us, and I think he's only suggesting it, is he's suggesting receive it all as a good gift. Even your labor, even the work that you're doing, receive it as a gift from the Lord, and you'll find it a little bit different. Um, I, I love reading Wendell Berry. Um, he's like a, he's like an academic, an intellectual. Um, he's a fiction, nonfiction writer, poet, um, and he's also a farmer. And he likes to write about, it, it's a little bit like old-fashioned, and it can be a little heavy-handed at times, but he's trying to get pull people away from all the industrial things that we do and how the, the industrialization of farming and, and all of our work, it kind of strips the joy out of it. And, and so he, he writes about like harvesting with his neighbors. So he's like literally lives on a farm. He works his farm and then he writes scholarly stuff and, and poetic stuff in his spare time. But he's writing about the harvest and how when you're together with people, it's really hard labor doing this like harvest, but you're coming together with your neighbors and, and the kids are there and the kids are like playing on the edges of what you're doing. And, and, and you're, you're in there and you're sweating, but you're also talking and enjoying life and you're celebrating together afterwards. And so he's talking about how it's possible for us to find life and joy in the things themselves rather than having to retreat from. So he says, It is possible, as I have learned again and again, to be in one's place in such company and with such pleasure that one cannot think of another place that one would prefer to be or even of another place at all. Being there is simply all and is enough. Such times give one the chief standard and the chief reason for one's work. See, I love the thought of that, of just like, whatever you're doing. It doesn't have to be like super glamorous, okay? So it's, it's like, um, you can do a thing where you just feel like, man, what I'm doing is changing the world. You know, I mean, we, we heard from uh, George Walker a few weeks ago where he was talking about like going into a jungle tribe and people are coming to know Jesus for the first time. I think we'd all be like, boy, that's meaningful work, right? But I'm telling you, even if your work is building houses or, um, or I don't know what, printing labels, like whatever thing you do, you can be present in that work. You can receive it as a gift from the Lord and you can be present in it with the people around you in such a way that like, you don't have to retreat from that to find life elsewhere. There's life to be found and it only happens if we can open our hands and receive it as a gift from God. It does not work if we're trying to find all of our meaning and satisfaction in that one thing. So the, um, Ian uh, Provan, he says, there's no pathway to joy except by refusing to pursue it and to grasp at it. I think that is such a... Uh, it's, it's like an interesting juxtaposition. It's a paradox, but you're not going to find joy if you're seeking it, if you're grasping it. But it's, but it's there. It's there to be found. It's there to be had. Um, and so now he's, he's kind of ending this portion of his quest like this. He said what he said. He's, he's trying to um, debunk a lot of the pursuits for pleasure and meaning in life that we have. He ends it still by saying like, look, life's just still this enigma and, and it's just grasping after wind. We're not going to be able to hold on to it. But he's given us some hopeful sta statements. But we've said this. His three complaints were, it's better to be wise than not, um, but we still, like, death always wins in the end. Um, he's talked about how um, the, uh, the, the legacy that we leave is, is going to be unfulfilling. Um, and he's talked about how hard work is. Work really stinks. But here now, he's left us with a little bit of hope. And I, I want to I flip ahead to the New Testament for just a minute. And I want to leave us with this because what, what is interesting here is the preacher laid all this out. Okay, work is bleak and dark and death always wins in the end. If we skip ahead to the New Testament, 
We find Paul looking back, and I'm, I'm thinking of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul looks back in 1 Corinthians 15, and it's almost like he's having a discussion with the preacher. And he's saying, like, yes, work is hard, your labor is difficult, and death always wins. Sure, sure. But here's the thing. Paul talks about death like an enemy. And he says, death is the last enemy that will be defeated. So something happened with Jesus when he came into this world. Jesus came taking all of our sins upon himself. Jesus came offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And then Jesus went to that tomb and then he rose again into new life. And Paul looks back and he says, something happened in Jesus, in Jesus dying, in Jesus resurrecting, that totally transforms everything that the preacher experienced. And as much as we resonate with what the preacher is saying in many of these things, Paul is saying, it's a different thing in Jesus. And so he calls in 1 Corinthians 15, um, the death of Jesus, this, um, or the, sorry, the death is the last enemy that's going to be defeated. And then he goes on to say this in verse 51. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Isn't that interesting that the preacher so long before is just saying all of your work is meaningless because it just ends in death. And here's Paul saying, look, in Jesus, it all gets transformed and we all get transformed. Jesus went into death and he conquered death in new life. And he's saying in the same way, we do the same. And Paul's not just saying it's going to be fine because after death, there's new life again. Paul's also saying because there's new life after your death, the work you do now, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So uh, the preacher in Ecclesiastes says it's all vanity, and Paul's saying it's not in vain. There is meaning in the work that we do if we're doing it in the Lord. I love this calling. And, and the way I kind of just want to like leave us this morning is it's, it's heavy, it's hard. There's like a lot of like kind of big things that he wrestled with here. But I think that all of us are in this spot in our lives. We're all, we're all like in really different spots. So some of us, men are just like amazing. Everything's good. I'm very happy for you. That's awesome. Others of us are like coming at this and we're like, honestly, like my work life is like, I don't know how much longer I can bear it. Like you're like at that place of like early retirement, job career switch. Like, I don't know, but this is killing me. And you feel like that rough pull. Some of you, it's more like family dynamics and relationships. Like some of you, it's just things, you know, like kind of formula approach to Christianity. Like I've done what I've needed to do. I lived that wise, prudent life and I'm trying to do the right things, but it's not panning out. And people that I've been praying for are not being healed or they're not following the path of the Lord. They're like, it's just such a wrestle for so many of us in different ways. And I think we all need to hear um, both the hope that the preacher gives us and enjoy the things as gifts from God, like find the joy in them. And I think we need to hear Paul's words as he looks back and just says, man, in the Lord, like, like don't, don't give up, don't back down, uh, be steadfast, immovable, always abound in that work of the Lord, because in the Lord, your work matters. Your labor is not in vain. And, and, the, and, and the reality that 
it's not always, God's not always in the business of preserving us from death, right? Death still comes to us all. Paul, I think, would agree with that. But he's saying death is not the end of it. There is this resurrection and there's life. And I think that's literally true for us. If we put our faith in Jesus, we literally get resurrected at the end of all things with Jesus. I think it also is true in many different areas of our lives. Things that we thought were dead, relationships that we thought were gone, things, situations that we thought were impossible. Often, Jesus comes and gives new life to those things as well. We sang it uh, a a little bit ago. Uh, He turns graves into gardens, right? He turns bones into armies. Like we sang that. I resonate with that because it is so true. The way that God works is, man, yes, this life beats us down. The preacher is not wrong for saying it's all just this enigma. It's a vein. It's grasping the wind. He's not wrong. But in Jesus, there's so much more. And so I want to invite us just to continue on this journey with him. He's going to dip back into depressing territory again. He's going to offer us some some cool, wise insights. We're going to keep journeying with him week by week. But what I hope is that we stay with this thing. We don't have to settle it now uh, uh, for sure uh, for ourselves with conviction or whatever. But we need to keep on that journey and see what he's offering to us. So let me pray for us as we process all that. Lord, thank you so much that we have these words, words that have been um, sitting here and and gifted to your people for thousands of years, words that we hear and process and and can wrestle with. Um, Lord, I I confess uh, how much I resonate with some of the different statements that are in here, and I know that um, where so many of my brothers and sisters here are at, Lord, there's this resonance with different elements of this. Lord, um, we can't make it through this life without you. And we try, Lord, but we can't find meaning and hope and satisfaction in this life apart from you. I pray, Lord, that that would be something that you gently teach us as we continue on in this book. We're not going to find the life that we need apart from you. Lord, may we find that life in you. Would you speak to us, Lord? Would you guide us? Would you shepherd our hearts? Would you lead us into ways of being, ways of acting, ways of relating to you that are healthy, and that that receive the things that you give us as gifts from you. Lord, may we enjoy life not apart from you, but with you. Lord, and may we believe truly deeply what Paul says, that in you our labor is not in vain. What what an amazing promise. And so, Lord, I I think of uh, the work life of all my brothers and sisters here. I, I picture us trying to live our lives in wisdom rather than foolishness. And I pray that you would just breathe life into our feeble efforts. Give us enjoyment in the things. Lord, for, for my brothers and sisters here that have found work to be a dead end and, and a lifeless place, Lord, would you even this week begin to breathe life into some of those relationships, into some of those processes? Or maybe we find life in fellowship with you, even in dark, difficult places. Thank you that you are a God that is a God of resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name.